Let's have a word of prayer together. Almighty God, in this uh, very busy and yet also very beautiful season, we celebrate your birth into the world. We celebrate your coming to be with us, Emmanuel. We prepare for that celebration in these days and weeks ahead, and, and we know that you already are here, but we also know that we need to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls to meet you, to listen to you, to receive the message you have for us, and then faithfully to, faithfully to respond uh, as your faithful disciples. So come and be with us now, Lord, as we always invite you, knowing you're already here, but come and be with us to inspire us, to educate us, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, to encourage us where we need to be strengthened, and then to inspire us uh, with your Holy Spirit that continues to work in the world. We pray that your Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds as we study your word today. For the sake of Jesus the Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Okay, friends, we've been studying the gospel according to Luke. You well know that. We are now looking at uh, the early uh, stories of the early times of Jesus' life. And uh, last week, we looked at uh, how the story of Jesus, like all of us, began before Jesus actually appeared, right? Um, I think little children think that time begins from the time they were born. Uh, but eventually, as adults, we learned that there actually was something going on before we got here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Luke is telling us about. He's told us how the angel Gabriel has come to the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth to tell them that they're going to have a baby, John, who will become the forerunner, the announcer of the, uh, the birth of the Messiah into the world. And so we're going to pick up the story uh, with uh, very familiar passages to all of us. There's quite a lot of text, but I think it's wonderful for us to dwell on that text in our hearts. So I'll be reading uh, verses 57 through 80 of chapter 1 of Luke, and then we have quite a lot more to work through, but I think we can do that today. So let's hear God's word. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, what then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham. 
to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. This is beautiful, beautiful stuff. I hope you catch the sense of that. As with so many scriptures, especially those that we frequently hear or frequently read, it's so easy to let the words just go over us rather than into us, but we need to let them go into us. So what's going on here? Okay, Zechariah and Elizabeth, very old, too old to have kids, but they have a kid. Zechariah has been told by Gabriel that the name of the child is to be John. That's an issue. Maybe you picked up on that in the reading of it. Everyone would presume that the child would be given the same name as his father, or at least a family name. But that's not the case, and that upsets everyone in some sense. But it's very clear. Elizabeth says, no, his name is going to be John. They appeal to a higher authority. They appeal to Zechariah. Zechariah says, no, his name is going to be John. There's a signal right there to us that something special, something unique and different is going on in the world. This is outside the norm. That's one of the dynamics of what happens when God comes into our lives. We set up our rules, our regulations, our habits, our traditions, our rituals, our patterns, all of that stuff, which have their place, of course. But very often in the scriptures, when God decides to do something in the world, it breaks the pattern. It upsets the, the tradition and the ritual and the norm because God is outside of the norm, even in something as simple as the naming of a child. So his name is going to be John. Now, the fact that John is born is in some sense its own miracle, but of course a larger miracle is coming. We need to pay attention to what Zechariah says when John is born. This is called, in some of the ancient, uh, more liturgical Christian traditions, like the Roman Catholic tradition, this speech from John, uh, from uh, Zechariah, this prophecy, is called the Benedictus. As some of you grow up with that tradition, perhaps, the Benedictus. That's because the first word in this speech from Zechariah is Benedictus, which means blessing, benediction. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Everything in the story that Luke tells us, everything that happens in Scripture ultimately is about the worship of God and recognizing who God is, what God does in the world, and how dependent we are, which is, oh, 100% completely so. <laughs> we are dependent on God for everything. So blessed be God because God is fulfilling His promise to Israel. Now, let's put ourselves back into the history of this. We have to go back 2,000 years, of course, to get to Zechariah's speech. Zechariah was thinking about the um, 
at least 1,000 years, more like 1,300 to 1,500 years of his own history and the history of the Jewish people. How God had come to Abraham and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and then how the family of Abraham grew and became a nation and then was destroyed and then was coming back again and now was in trouble again. All throughout that history, the people of God were looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise of God that God would save the people, that God would keep the people safe, that God would fulfill his promise to bless not just them, but everyone. And that is what God is doing now in a new way, and we will say in the definitive way, the ultimate way, as God sends the Messiah. Notice how that salvation is discussed in Zechariah's speech. Number one, Zechariah says, you're going to protect us from our enemies. Well, that's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? Wouldn't we like to be protected from our enemies? Some of what's going on here relates to the, to the messianic expectation that God is going to send a new leader like David had been, who is going to reunite all the 12 tribes of Israel and create Israel into a great nation again in all the normal ways that we would expect that. That was part of the messianic expectation. Of course, Jesus did not fulfill that expectation, at least in the way that people thought. But Zechariah's speech also begins to talk about how Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah of God, does fulfill that expectation. Verse 78, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus will bring forgiveness from God. Jesus will bring restoration and renewal of our relationship with God. Jesus will bring in a final way the knowledge that death is not the end of life, that that hatred does not counsel out love, that, that evil does not counsel out goodness, but that in fact, God wins. Love wins. Life wins. That's what the final message of the Messiah is all about. So Zechariah's speech is, uh, in some ways, we might say one of the first Christian hymns or Christian songs. It's going a little bit too far to say that because that word Christian wasn't used until long after Jesus was gone. But here is a, a hymn praising Jesus the Christ for who he is, for who he will be. And so it's important for us in this Advent season as we look forward to celebrating the birth, celebrating the coming of the Messiah, for us to remember what we expect and to think about what we want to have from God. And then, of course, to think more, uh, more deeply uh, about what God actually gives us, what God actually does for us in sending Jesus the Christ to us. Notice as well just one final thing that Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, plan to have their child circumcised on the eighth day. As I've said before, Zechariah and Elizabeth, as Joseph and Mary, as all of the other characters in the story of Jesus' life and birth in his family, they're good Jews. They are observant, practicing, faithful Jews. It is because of the attentiveness that they have given to God in that faithful practice that God now comes to them and uses them as the vessel through which he is going to speak to the whole world. 
And so we as Christians must go back and, and learn what that tradition was all about and understand what it said and appreciate it for what it is. And we'll continue to look at that as we go through these stories. Let's go then to the first 21 verses of chapter 2. The first 21 verses. This also is going to sound familiar. I'll have to warn you right now that this is kind of hard for me to read without tearing up because not only is it a beautiful passage, but this always takes me back to the Charlie Brown Christmas special. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I think this is kind of a generational thing. I don't know if our children uh, feel the same way about it. Remember in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, he's trying to celebrate Christmas. He gets that pathetic-looking little tree, and they finally decorate it, make it look pretty and all. And, you know, he asks, you know, the, all the kids are on the stage there trying to prepare for the, the celebration. And, you know, he shouts out, you know, does anybody know what Christmas is all about? See, it did it again. And then Linus walks out on the stage because uh, Charles Schultz, God bless him, was a very, very faithful Christian man. Uh, Linus walks out and reads this passage. He doesn't read it, he just recites it. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them, and gone into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I feel like we should sing a carol right now, you know, Gloria, something like that. 
Okay, we know this story so well, but we need to think about this story a bit more. Notice, I'll say it right, right off the bat, notice that Jesus is born into an observing, practicing, faithful Jewish family. Jesus, too, is taken to be circumcised on the eighth day. Jesus, is too, is given a name that is not a family name. He's given the name Yeshua. It's probably the way it would have been said, or at least close to it. By the way, I forgot to tell you that when I was in Syria this last time, we went into a small village called Malula, where some of the people still speak ancient Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke. And one of the ladies prayed the Lord's Prayer for us in Aramaic. Uh, to, to a Western ear, it sounds just like Arabic. It all sounds the same, uh, but it is a slightly different language. So Jesus was named Yeshua, which means God saves. It's the name we would say as Joshua in some sense. Jesus is given that name. Okay, but Jesus is born into a faithful family. People always ask the question, I thought God was Jesus's father, not Joseph. Why do they go to Joseph's town? Why are they registered under Joseph's name? What's going on with that? And the best answer we have is we don't know. <laughs> it is very clear that in the stories that, that Jesus is born into Joseph's family as well as Mary's family, and some will say that Mary's family also was of the same lineage of the house of David, but of course in the habits and practices of that time, Jesus is registered under Joseph's family name. Jesus Josephson is the way, that's Jesus' last name. You realize that, right? Jesus' last name is not Christ. Has anybody ever told you that? It is not Jesus Christ like Jack Bockett. It is Jesus the Christ. Christos, the, the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus' last name, if you would have assigned him a last name then, which normally would not be done, would be Jesus Josephson. If in that culture you would have said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, to locate him in a place, or Jesus, son of Joseph, Josephson. That's how we would say that. So Jesus is born, and then, of course, the angels come and have their, their cool little uh, aria in front of the shepherds. I'm going to be talking about this passage, actually, this coming Sunday, and focusing on the shepherds. A couple things about the shepherds you need to know. Number one, it would be highly unlikely that in the middle of December that shepherds would be out in the fields with their flocks in the middle of night. It would be too cold. Uh, it is highly unlikely that Jesus was born on December 25th. More likely that Jesus would have been born sometime in the spring. That makes no difference to us theologically, really, and it does not undercut the truth of Scripture. Uh, December 25th was chosen uh, about three or four hundred years after Jesus was born. It was chosen by the church as the date to celebrate his birth because nobody really knew because the day a person was born was not significant in Jesus' day. The day you died was significant. But that date was chosen because all the pagan people around celebrated December 25th as the shortest day of the year and the beginning of the return of the sun, the winter solstice. We know it's on December 22nd. Ancient folks were off by about three days. I think we can cut them some slack. So that's why we have December 25th. That's okay. Some people 
point that fact out to you and say, oh, we know Jesus could not have been born on December 25th. The Bible is wrong, therefore you can't believe anything it says. Uh, you know, let's chill out about that. At any rate, Jesus is born, the, sh the angels come, and the angels, like all angels, because what? Angels are messengers from God. Angels have a message to share. The message is the Messiah is born now into the world. Emmanuel, God with us. Luke does not use the word Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel comes to us from Matthew in Gabriel's appearance to Joseph. Okay? Some will say, why didn't Joseph name him Emmanuel instead of Jesus? Well, because the angel said, he is going to be Emmanuel, God with you, but you're going to name him Jesus. So the angel's message is, God is born into the world, and we should be happy about that fact. Not God is born into the world and Jesus is really ticked off and he's here to make your life miserable and to condemn you to a life full of shame and guilt and fear. But Jesus is born into the world and what is the message? Peace on earth. Now, some people get excited about what follows after that phrase. Peace on earth among those whom he favors. There are two ways you can read that. God loves some people, and the Messiah has come to proclaim God's favor to those people, and they should be happy. Peace on earth if God loves you, if you're one of the chosen. Or it could be read as peace on earth among those whom he favors, meaning God favors all. Peace on earth, goodwill to all. We have to look at the rest of the story of Scripture to try to understand that particular phrase. And of course, the rest of the story of Scripture, especially as it's going to play itself out in the next 30 to 35 and 45 and 50 years after Jesus is born, is that there was an argument in the church about whether God favored only the Jews or God might also intend to favor the Gentiles. The idea that God also favors the Gentiles, that God loves all, is the idea that won out because God chose to come and tell Gentile pagan kings, magi, about the birth of the Christ child, and they came to worship too. That's just one of the many instances in which we know that God came to save all. So, Jesus is born, Jesus is uh, taken to be circumcised. Now, most Christmas stories sort of end with the reading of that passage. If you throw in the Matthew passages, of course, then you got, have to have the, the wise men involved and Herod and all that, and of course we do that. But as Luke tells the story, this is the story. For today, we're going to continue on and look at a couple of other stories, though, because Luke tells us more than anybody else about the birth and then the childhood of Jesus. We don't know much about the childhood of Jesus. There were some other stories that were written about Jesus' childhood shortly after his death, uh, but, but they were uh, stories that the church ultimately judged were not credible. They were not real. They were not true. Uh, you can still go back and find some of those, uh, but this is the story that we have of Jesus' childhood. So, starting with verse 22 of Luke 2. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, meaning Joseph and Mary, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. 
And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, let's stop there for just a second and one comment. Here again, Joseph and Mary are doing what is customary and traditional in their faith to present uh, Jesus uh, before God and to offer a sacrifice before God in thanksgiving and in praise for the successful birth of a child and the life of the child. They offer two turtle doves or uh, young pigeons, which means they were poor. They weren't rich enough to afford a sheep or a cow. So the story continues. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. There's that Holy Spirit again. God is at work. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Let's stop there just for a second. Simeon. Joseph and Mary come into the temple, and Simeon is an old man. He's been going to the temple pretty much every day, asking God, when's the Messiah going to come? Looking for the Messiah. Simeon is a faithful and devout Jew. Simeon, through the gift of the Spirit, don't ask me how it happened, don't ask me what went on, we only know that it went on if we trust this story. Simeon perceived through the gift of the Spirit that Jesus was somebody special. And so Simeon says, okay, I'm ready to go now, God. I've waited my whole life, and most people wait beyond their lives, but Simeon has waited his whole life to see what God is doing in Jesus. And so Simeon says, now dismiss your service, your servant. This is called the nunc dimittis. Are you familiar with that term? Any of you have studied Roman Catholic stuff? Now dismiss, nunc dimittis, now dismiss your servant. Because what? Because God's salvation is here, God's peace is here, God's light is here. Notice in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. How much more clear do you need to have it than that? Jesus is for all people and for glory to your people, Israel. And then Simeon makes a curious comment. He said, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many. The inner thoughts of others are going to be revealed. Clearly in Jesus' ministry, lots of people saw what God was doing and embraced it and welcomed it. And others said, no, they dismissed it so much so that they killed Jesus. That's what's going to happen in Jesus' life. When God shows up, people have a choice to make if they will see and understand what God is doing and embrace it and follow it or reject it. We have that choice. So that's Simeon's message. 
as a gift from the Spirit about who Jesus is. Then picking up with verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. I made a comment at La Costa Glen yesterday about 84 being really, really old, and 101-year-old Woody said, huh, <laughs> right? She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Notice Anna, a woman, is mentioned as a prophet. Isn't that interesting? We look back at the ancients and say, well, this was a patriarchal society and women were completely despised and rejected, but not necessarily so. People understood that Anna, too, had the Spirit of God in her life in a very special way. She, too, was a faithful Jew who came to the temple with fasting and prayer. Notice what it is that faithful people do. They present themselves before God and gives God some time and attention. Now, we don't, well, we're kind of asking you guys to fast these days when you come. I mean, we're giving you a little cookie and, you know, we don't have the big spreads that we used to. Maybe that's our version of fasting, right? But we do come and pray. We do come and read the scriptures. We're doing the same thing that Anna did. And Anna, too, sees who Jesus is, Right? At that moment, she began to praise God and speak about the child. And then Joseph and Mary go home, and they take Jesus, and Jesus grows and becomes strong, filled with wisdom. That's almost all that we know about Jesus' childhood, is that he was born, Joseph and Mary did what was required and what was uh, expected as a way of thanking God and dedicating their, their son to God. And then they went home and they were good parents and they took him to Sunday school and they took him to youth group and they came to church and Jesus learned about God. And Jesus had a fascinating life, of course, from after that. Jesus was a human being who was raised in a very human family according to the traditions and habits of the people of God. He, of course, was more than that. And so one final story, and then I'll be quiet, and you guys can ask some questions or make a comment or two. So be thinking about whether or not you're brave enough to come up here to this intimidating microphone and ask a question. Luke 2, verses 41 to 52. Now every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Good, faithful Jews. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? 
Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Okay, there are only a few stories that tell us about Jesus' childhood. Some of the other stories that are written about Jesus' childhood, by the way, talk about events like children playing on the rooftop of the houses, which was a common thing, and Jesus pushing his friends off so that he could watch them fall and break their legs or maybe even die, and he would go down and fix their legs and heal them and resurrect them, and that was just kind of Jesus' childhood. Um, those stories did not make it into the canonical scriptures um, for understandable reasons. What did happen in Jesus' childhood was that he grew up as a normal, average, ordinary, everyday kid. That's it. There were only a few clues in his life that were remembered and that were told about his life was like. He was taken at the age of 12 to celebrate the Passover, and then his folks left without him. How could they do that? Joseph and Mary would be hauled in front of Child Protective Services today, right? Well, in that day, by the time you were 12, you were a quasi-adult. 12 is the time of bar mitzvah, of course. It's the time when in even our culture, at the age of 12, you begin to be treated as an adult in some way, shape, or form. Plus, you are part of a large family group. This indicates to us that Jesus was part of a family group. We know that he had brothers and sisters, or we might say half-brothers and half-sisters, right? So it would not necessarily be unusual that Joseph and Mary would say, well, everybody knows we're going back. Jesus must be with them. They walk a few miles outside of Jerusalem. He's not there. They go back and say, well, why wouldn't they look for him in the temple? Didn't Mary know? Mary, did you know that Jesus was the Son of God? Why wouldn't you start in the temple? This too raises a question. Mary treasures these things and ponders these things. Mary knows who Jesus is. Joseph knows who Jesus is. And yet, do they fully understand? I think the scriptures do a good job of identifying for us how it is that spiritually we know something, but it doesn't quite necessarily make sense until later. It's only later. We don't know, of course. Joseph drops away from the, from the story. Mary, of course, continues on, but it's really only after the resurrection that anybody, including Mary, I think, this is my judgment, the scripture doesn't say it one way or the other, but I think that Mary knew about Jesus, but, but you can know something without fully trusting it, without fully understanding what it means. We're told that all the disciples, that everyone around Jesus had no clue how his life was going to end up and were offended and, and disappointed and, and sad when Jesus' life ended up with him dead on the cross. It's only after the resurrection that everybody, including Mary, finally understood what was going on. So Jesus is in the temple learning about God. People often question, they say, well, if Jesus was the preexistent Son of God, part of the divine logos, by whom all things were created and through whom the writing of the scriptures was inspired, didn't Jesus already know the scriptures? Sure, yes. And no, of course not. We have to say that if we believe in the 
union of human and divine in the mystery of the incarnation. On the divine side, yes, of course, Jesus knew it all. On the human side, Jesus needed to go to Sunday school and do the flannel graphs and have Mrs. Arnold teach him stories about, I was going to say stories about Jesus, but those stories weren't there yet, stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the rest. That's how we learn about God. So, Jesus increases in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. The church, the people around Jesus, didn't have much more to say about his life until he appeared on the scene as an adult. And so for all of our celebrations of Christmas and the big business about the birth of the Messiah into the world, all of it is absolute meaningless hogwash unless and only after we understand what Jesus did as an adult. Does that make sense? Your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your challenge and rejection of everything I've said. <laughs> I appreciate so much how you really brought in Christmas and how it really was established and that Christ was probably born in the spring. Um, and how we just, as human beings, make this wonderful story. And it is beautiful, and mm -hmm. we make it beautiful. Uh, but I appreciate, rarely do I hear anybody talk about this, and it has bothered me for years because mm -hmm. I know it's the truth. But anyway, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I think it's really important, um, if we're going to be faithful for the scriptures, it's really important to look at what we see there and what people have discovered there and to look at all the different challenges, all the different holes, all the different things that don't quite fit and admit that they're there. And then, of course, we have to go on beyond that. Lots of people, in my experience, say that I believe in Jesus and all the rest because the Bible says it, okay? And, and I understand that. I, I have a, what's called a very high view of Scripture. I think the Scriptures tell us the truth, the most important truth, and the most reliable truth about the most important questions. With that said, I do not think that the Scriptures are, are, are some kind of miraculous divine book uh, that are absolutely in our way of thinking, perfect in their way of describing the truth about God. Today, if we were to say that, you know, ABC News this morning said that Jesus was born on December 25th, and then later on we learned that Jesus was born on March 17th, therefore ABC News is not to be trusted. We would say that, right? ABC News was wrong. We can't trust them. But that's not the way the world thought then. That's not the way the world existed then. Stories are told to us and things are put together in ways that help us understand the deeper truth of what's going on. The fact of Jesus being born on December 25th is completely unimportant to people of the first or second or third century. What is important is that Jesus was born and who Jesus is. And so we need to learn to take ourselves back into the the ways that people and society and civilization worked in that time and not let the problems with that, problems that we would identify, uh, destroy our faith. Some people will say, well, I learned 
that the wise men probably did not show up on the same night as the shepherds, right? Well, yeah, of course. It probably took them up to two years to get to Jesus, which is why Herod had all the firstborn male children two and under killed so he could be sure to get Jesus, right? Obviously, he failed. That's a whole other story. So um, don't let the fact that the Bible does not report the news to you in the way that we hope the news is reported to us today uh, dissuade you from believing what the scriptures have to say. That's the whole point of that. It also helps us understand uh, the, the history of the church in some sense. The big news about Jesus is that God came into the world and was present in a miraculous way that we do not understand in the person of Jesus, that God lived for us, that God lived with us, that God suffered and died, that God was resurrected on the third day and lives in eternal glory and invites us into that same life. That's the big news. Not shepherds, not angels, not wise men, not all of that other stuff of Christmas. I harp on it so much because in Jesus' day, so many of the people of Israel had gotten everything wrong and were completely distracted by inconsequential things that were part of their tradition and history. And they did not understand, they did not want to believe maybe, they did, chose not to believe, they simply were, were misguided in understanding what God was all about because they got all twisted around. And we do that in Christianity today. It is a human problem, it's not a Pharisee's problem. I love Christmas, don't get me wrong. But all of our stuff about Christmas, so many people think that Christmas is the big deal of Christian faith. It is not. It is only to this extent that God came to be in the world, but just to say that God came to be in the world is not enough. What is enough is to say God came into the world to live for us, with us, die for us, and be resurrected for us. Easter is the big deal. And so starting next year, we're not going to celebrate Christmas in the village church. We're, no. <laughs> oh, well. Okay, I'm going to stop preaching now. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Go eat your tiny little fasting cookie. Bye. <laughs>